morning. We're too much scrolling. I'm Steve. I'm Chip. And we have all the information you need to survive another week. New shows published every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. We'll see you in the future. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Ian McNeese. Yes, I played Winston Churchill in The Victory of the Daleks in Doctor Who. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. I know I will. Bye now. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the diplomatic task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. I could have said radioactive task, but I'm saving that. I mean, is it very diplomatic when you're kidnapping people? Not really, but we'll get to that. It is a historic form of diplomacy. I guess. Anyway, my name is Tony Witt. (laughs) And today we have an often diplomatic discussion panel, except for today, apparently. No, no, it's including our so-called the expert, usual suspects, including our so-called <laughs> host, who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. Yeah, I've lost control, folks. There's also an intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, was not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. I'm worthy. Sometimes. And finally... Daily we, affirmation. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series, has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast, and this time it's the sometimes wise and often witty Allison Fitch. Say free hello, Allison. Be well, do good work, and stay in touch. <laughs> okay. I guess that works, too. Before we get to talking about the book, let's talk briefly about our Patreon page, as we always do, patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month you will receive among other possible goodies a randomly chosen BBC book not a Target book since we know that the alt-right now uses copies of Target books to throw at Antifa and vice versa that's hmm. how how many of them there are they're mm-hmm. just you know cannon fodder essentially yeah. as a gift for supporting us just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby, Bengelsdorf, Jay, Barry, and the Video Junkyard Podcast. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. Yes, in fact, we expect you to. And finally, you may have noticed we have a new version of our opening theme since last time. It's a remix of the temporary Pertwee theme that was only heard on two episodes uh, that were broadcast with the Jodie Whittaker theme and mashed up together done by Aaron S., whose mashup can be found at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55, along with many, many others. He has mashed up just about every version of the theme with every other version of the theme. We will be going back to his page in future to find other mashups and you should give him a follow and thumbs up because he was very gracious in letting us use that mashup for our new theme. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we continue with our discussion of the third, third Doctor Who novelization. The third, third Doctor novelization, mm-hmm. that's what I meant to say. The Ambassadors of Death. Yeah. Without further ado, 
Here are some fast facts. Doctor Who The Ambassadors of Death, adapted by Terrence Sticks from the script by David Whitaker, Malcolm Hulk, and Terrence Sticks, that aired from 3-2170 to 5-270, published by Target Books in May 1987. As of this recording in May 2019, this title is currently out of print, 144 pages. Believe it or not, just like the first two novelizations we've read so far from Season 7, this one marks a milestone in the Target range. The Autumn Invasion was both the first official Target novelization as well as the first Pertwee story to be adapted to the page. And this one, which I'm passing around to our people who are here, and this one is the last Pertwee story to be adapted to the page. I can hmm. see why it would come in last place. Yeah. <laughs> or rather, it's the last televised one. Um, more about that later. In fact, we're going to be reading novelizations of two stories that were not televised. They were done as radio plays, but they kind of count as target novelizations, therefore we'll read them, even okay. though I despise them both. <laughs> this is supposed to be entertaining. Yeah, I know, but... <laughs> yeah, you, you threaten us. I do. I do. Uh, no surprise, they're both written by Taryn Sticks, these two. Not the ones I was just talking about, because those were written by somebody else. Place these two books side by side, of course, and you couldn't get two more different novels to the point that they almost seem written by different people. If you look at Autumn Invasion and then immediately read this after, you're thinking, what? Who? Yeah, <laughs> this could be the same person. Mind you, he would go on to write five more Target books after that before finishing with The Space Pirates, which we have read, mm -hmm. which was awful. But there's only one of those that we haven't read yet. So we've essentially seen what late era Dix looks like, and it's not pleasant. Mm -mm. Yeah, and this book unfortunately fits that bill. Of course, the reasons for the quality and the fact that it took so long to adapt might come down to Dick's own distaste for the story. Ambassadors was originally commissioned as a second Doctor Jamie Zoe story for season six. It was so generic it would work for kind of any combination of performers. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah it I guess they're still both science companions. Well, but. here's the thing. It, it's not the story we got, because that story, or the original story, differed greatly from what we got in that it was set in the far future and it didn't have a unit in it at all. Hmm. And when the new regime took over, Dix, in his post of script editor, inherited the script and finally wanted to produce it or get rid of it. Here's Dix himself talking about it, and I'm not playing a recording because I don't have one, and I'm not going to do... Dick's famous accent because it'll sound like I'm making fun of him and I don't want anyone thinking I'm making more fun of him. He, he does there will have, be enough genuine ridicule yeah, that there's no need to he does kill have the a, lily. Yes, exactly. All right. David Whitaker had gone through four or five drafts and you come to a stage where you write so much it just gets worse. What was happening was the, the need for the script was very urgent, and I stormed into producers Peter Bryant and Derek Sherwin and said, look, we've got five drafts of this. David's fed up with it. He doesn't know what to do. What we need to do is pay David in full, and Mac Hulk and I will finish it. And that's basically what we did. I made sure that David got a full script fee for all his episodes because he'd been buggered about by the establishment. And Mac and I took the bare bones of his story and almost did a war games, wrote new scripts very quickly, and it shows mm. it had its moments, though. So I, I get the impression that both of you kind of dislike this story. You didn't dislike it nearly as much as the people who wrote it, including mm. the person who novelized it. So that's probably why, if you feel like this one is kind of like... Yeah, it's a little labored. Reasons. 
<laughs> just a little bit. So. Well, and it wasn't offensive or painful. It was no. just I kept waiting for whatever was going to happen to happen, and it never did. Well, let's talk about that. But let's also talk about the fact that at this point in the production history, the production team is still experimenting with opening titles. And this story featured an opening with the standard Doctor Who credit, followed by a teaser, followed by the story title coming in on a louder sting. It's impressive, but they did it only for this story. Inferno is also going to have unusual titles, but from season seven onward, the titles are calm. Mm. You just get the titles. You don't get any fancy effects or ethereal singing behind them or anything like that, like you did in the Trump era. This was also one of the stories that the BBC wiped the original color tapes of. <laughs> but since it had been sent to the U.S. as part of a syndication package in color, uh, the restoration team was able to reproduce the color signal from the NTSC version that they had and release the whole serial on DVD in 2000. Uh, sorry. I love that year. Which year? <laughs> sorry. Bad hair year. Oh my me. God. The whole serial on DVD in 2009. Okay, yeah, that wasn't meant to be punctuation, but there you go. But they never lost the episode, just lost the color Yeah, which essentially was the copy they had. Um, They had kinescopes, because they were still sending copies, film copies, in black and white Mm to, so now we say lesser markets, markets that didn't have color TV Mm -hmm. yet, like Saudi Arabia and such, they had them, they they were taking it. But yeah. Yeah, so we don't have the original color tapes, but that's also going to stop by Pertwee's last season. It's kind of weird. In fact, we don't get, you asked this last time, when do we stop losing tapes? Not until the Baker era. Mm. And at that point, we've got dedicated fans going in and saying, stop, yeah. don't race these. You're, you're, They're historically... Two fifty for your own good. Yeah, exactly. You have enough of a fan base that this is something that we are interested in yes. keeping. Obviously, the BBC doesn't do this anymore, but then they don't need to anymore because they're not recording anything on videotape and they're not, you know, doing something on a medium that they want to erase and save money on. Everything is digital, which probably means that if there is ever an apocalypse, then we'll lose everything from New Doctor Who. But it'll be okay because we won't have an electrical grid yet for another few years. That's true, and we'll all be dead anyway. (laughs) Um, apart from the fact that the story is still in that period when Doctor Who comes closest to being the Avengers or Danger Man, and I mean John Steed and Mrs. Yes. Peel. The what other kind of troglodyte you take before? Well, it's just every <laughs> once in a while, and I know people in the audience are thinking, oh, I loved Endgame. It's like, no, 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 we're not talking about that yet. No. The other noteworthy thing about it is that Ronald Allen, who played Cornish, had just been on the year before as Rago in The Dominators. Mm playing a very different part. And Michael Wisher, who plays the TV reporter Wakefield, would go on to originate the role of the creator of the, the Daleks, Stavros. Okay. And Caroline John's husband, Jeffrey Beavers, who had just knocked her up, uh, who would eventually go on to play a version of the Master, appears briefly in the story, too. So <clears throat> it's, got a, it's got a good cast. Yeah. In fact, Carrington is played by John Woodnut, who, despite having a ridiculous name... <laughs> Not John Woodbat, I'm sorry. It's, um, he was in, shit, he was in a Terror of the Zygons just the other night when I was watching it. No, uh, Abeniri. I'm trying to remember his name, but he can't, he'll be on Doctor Who again. Mm. Anyway, so, God fucking damn it. So, which of you would like to read the lovely back cover for us? I nominate from the floor. I have, uh, I have it in front of me, so I guess it's me. It's you. 
Seven months after it left Mars, there's still been no radio communication from the Probe 7 spacecraft or the astronauts inside it. Back on Earth, concern is mounting, and eventually, a recovery capsule is sent up to rescue the astronauts. But when the capsule returns to Earth, it is found to be empty. As the Doctor and Liz investigate, they discover that the interior of the capsule is highly radioactive. If anyone was inside, they would now surely be dead. Don't call me Shirley. Shirley, you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Have the astronauts indeed returned to Earth? And if not, who are the sinister space-suited figures who stalk the countryside and whose very touch means instant death? When are they stalking the countryside? They're not. It just sounds better if it sounds like they are. They're being delivered by Uber death <laughs> Yes, yes, they are kind of. I, I'm sure Carrington along with them to be thought of mm. stalking the countryside. Uh, note to self: you must get the clip from the airplane that has uh, <laughs> that line. Don't in call it. me Shirley. Yes, thanks for that. I did not know that's where that was from. That's exactly yeah. where that originates from. Oh, God See, bless. where else do you get this wealth of cultural knowledge? Anywhere. Other than right there. <laughs> <laughs> nice so, self-pwn there. Yes. So, where do we start? God, where do we start? It wasn't the Cybermen. It wasn't the Cybermen. That's always good, isn't it? And it wasn't the Ice Warriors, even though it was from Mars. In fact, I was wondering if either of you would be... Expecting? Um, expecting that, because it's from Mars. Mm-mm. No? I was expecting someone or something familiar. And actually, the th- well, not throwaway bit, the sort of the beat that I liked most in the story was... Early on, the idea that the Doctor remembers a lot of things and doesn't remember why he remembers them and the connecting information. Yeah. I liked that a lot. So the idea that he recognized the noise, but he couldn't place it. So I expected more of a reveal that it would be someone we remembered as well. Mm-hmm. And Dalton asked about that before the recording, and I noted it in my notes too. It never comes to fruition. Mm-hmm. It's probably some untelevised story Something. where he may, have been, he may have met these creatures before. But was it... Which story was it that there was a... I think it was the Cybermen story. Okay. That they were sending a signal. Yes. And then the doctor sent a... Counter signal? A counter signal, or a fake signal, or a... That wasn't Cybermen. That was the Ice Warriors. Was it the Ice Warriors? Sins of Doom. Okay. You know, remember when Troughton was the, you know... Yes. Butcher. Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> I'm mixing things up. But but that, that was initially when they were talking about the... the the signal. I was like, mm-hmm. "Oh, here's a tie-in." It could have been. No, it, no. D- it didn't come back. And no, I think it wasn't. <laughs> that would have turned out to be one of the most fundamentally disappointing things because I think it's a good idea to have new villains and new threats, and you don't have to keep recycling the same ones. But when you sort of promise one and it doesn't materialize, it seems a little unsatisfying. Just a little. Yeah. Bit. And it wouldn't have to be someone that we had seen before. Just. Yeah. Go back to the doctor's previous experience. And it could be to us a new story, but oh, did, that, we didn't come back to that. Yeah, but that's fine because that's what Doctor Who does best, really. It introduces people that he has met before and dealt with before and we haven't seen. Mm-hmm. We're going to get a lot more of that in later years. In the 80s, for instance, we'll find out that the Pertwee Doctor had all these adventures that we never saw. And thank God, because they sound terrible. Mm. <laughs> So it's just as well. But this may be from one that, you know, the Hartnell Doctor had or the Trouton Doctor had, and we just never saw it. Never well, this heard is it. 
This is like um, once Wolverine was established as having such a long past in the 80s. Like, all right, how many ex-girlfriends and formal evil bosses can a person possibly have even mm -hmm. in all of those decades? It's, well, it's a way to start a story, though. Well, all I'm Marvel characters have that problem, don't <laughs> <Yes>. they? <laughs> I mean, seriously, but at least it, with DC, you can explain it away with Earth 1 and Earth 2 and all the fact that there are several other Earths to But it's a way through. to start a story where the character's already familiar. Yes. I can give you a, a sort of a a quick background mm -hmm. instead of True. going through the character discovering things for the first time. We kind of got that with the first appearance of the Cybermen, though, didn't we? Because the Hartnell Doctor knew who they were, mm. and he knew True. what was going to happen. Yeah. But, of course, that helps helps him along. But in this case, yeah, it does feel like a lost opportunity, maybe, to some yeah. degree. At least they explain why we never hear from them ever again. Yeah. Because it's kind of a major thing for them to have yeah. made first contact in, well, let's see, if we're talking about unit time, right now it's 1976, supposedly, even though the story was uh, transmitted in the 70s. So they made first contact in 76, and we never heard from that race again. And the, the reason why is because we were off on the wrong foot. And they never wanted to see us again. Bad first date. I actually yeah. like the idea there was Very a long-term consequence. <laughs> exactly. We've all been there before. Mm -hmm. you, you take some nice girl or guy or, you know, object of weird gender off on a date and you force them to kill people for you and they take it the wrong way because you really meant it for other reasons. Yeah. Anyway. But that's uh, enough about my love life. Um, I'm just imagining now an app called Killer K I L R where you can meet assassins <laughs> that are not personally connected to you, so you'll have yeah, you know, sort of that a works. certain amount of distance. That's probably how he got Regan working for him, Carrington, because well, that character just comes from out of nowhere and you get nothing about him and nobody cares because he's just a standard villain. But I don't know, yes. I thought he was given the most amusing line, speaking of not usually being interested in casual sadism. That's true. But he he did have some, some color yeah, to him. That's true. And like we said before, there's nothing casual about his sadism. He seems pretty committed to it. Especially getting rid of those two thugs. Mm -hmm. That is one of the most chilling moments in the televised version, and it still is chilling on the page. With the gravel? Yeah. yeah. Bye. He's just like, oh, <laughs> don't worry, you can ride back there with them, it's fine. They're not mm -hmm. going to hurt you. Well, no, they won't, but the radiation yeah. will, and it mm -hmm. does. And it's like, Jesus, God. Yeah, if, if you're not terrified of radiation before encountering the story, you will be after, because it pulls pulls no punches mm. except it when it gets it wrong <laughs> i mean really the, the how given how many rads everybody in the story is exposed to they should all be dead of cancer within five years yeah well the doctor will be <laughs> but that's a different story man that was dark yeah just a little bit i mean i mean that not the actor the um the character He's regenerating regenerate. within five years. Yeah. But not from cancer, is it? Um, he's killed by radiation. Oh, however. okay. But it's a different form of it. Thanks so a lot. So let's not get ahead of us now ourselves. And knowing half the battle. G.I. <laughs> Joe. Anyway. <laughs> so, what else then? Let's talk about what the plot actually is. What was the whole point? What was Carrington, who's behind it all, trying to do? 
I still don't know. Use intergalactic <laughs> first contact to bump off his own enemies? Maybe. But kind of wanted to start war with aliens, mm-hmm. but he didn't have nearly enough information to know if he could win war with aliens or whether yeah. or not he would benefit from war with aliens. So exactly. That never made much sense to me. I thought it was more that he never trusted them from the start, and this was his way of getting revenge against them for killing his shipmates on Mars Probe 6. And that's another thing, by the way, everybody. Um, Apparently, Great Britain had a rocket program as early as the 70s and sent seven probes in total to Mars. Weird alternate history. Yeah, just bypass the moon completely. Yeah, exactly. Well, the hell with the moon. Yeah. Yeah, But, yeah, it seems like maybe it's this vast thing where he's trying to... And he sees it as... uh, He keeps saying his moral duty... Yeah, his <laughs> moral duty to uh, off these people because they're obviously traitorous and murderers and all that, and it's it's a pretty good portrait of someone who's definitely insane. I think, mm. or there's something is yeah. not right yeah. with him. Mm. Not because he's too good at planning to be, as they put it, insane. But that's true. That it seemed like a weird beat to me. Yeah. I think, personally, it's Malcolm Hulk again. And he's looking at the military mind and saying, the military mind's a pretty fragile thing. It sees enemies everywhere. Mm. And if you present it with something that looks like an enemy, it's going to treat it like an enemy, even when it's given, you know, every every rationale not to be one. We saw that much yeah. better portrayed in the previous stories. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I wonder what would have happened if Hulk had tried to novelize this, because I think it would have been a fuller story. We might have gotten more about Carrington and why he is the way he yeah, is. Yeah, the motivation. But I'm betting anything that that, if he'd written it, we would have gotten the prologue where Carrington meets them on Mars Probe mm-hmm. 6 and see, sees his friend killed, so that we know from the beginning who's doing it, because this, this back-and-forth mess is just... Well, he's not sympathetic, nor deliciously evil, nor an enigma. He's just kind of there. And we're told he's... It's very much a tell-rather-than-show story. It is. Mm -hmm. Well, that's John Abeneri for you. That's the name of the actor, John Abeneri. Yeah, he plays Carrington. But, yeah, the book is definitely show. Uh, I'm sorry, not show. It's tell. It's the other way. Well, I mean, I think it literally says... He was insane. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I I think Cornish says it at one point. But when Cornish says it, you get the the sense that he's come to that conclusion after a while and they're not being told by the book. Right. Look, this guy's crazy. He's worked with him long enough. He's experienced him. I thought it was outright said by the narrator. I'll I'll look. Now it's Cornish. But, yeah, if you can find it, absolutely. Yeah, it's later in the book. Yeah. Because I know that the brigadier and... Cornish are talking about him after he leaves in that way that, in that mean girl's way that you do after one of your friends goes off to the bathroom when you're at the club. Or maybe that is just me again. Okay, so two times we have the word insane. Cornish says he's insane and then, oh, sorry, I just lost it. <laughs> Pun intended. Uh, <laughs> so suddenly, you. just like Cornish before him, the doctor realized that General Carrington was insane. It's the one guy. 
Okay. Okay, so they, both of them are from a character's perspective. Which is a little but. sad coming from the Doctor's perspective because it puts the lie to that last line, which I think actually is a nice beat where Carrington is so, so wanting the Doctor to be on his side that he says, you understand, don't you? And the Doctor says, yes, I understand. And you get the sense the Doctor does understand. He doesn't agree with it. Yeah. But he understands it. Well, I think the Doctor's dealt with enough species at this point where he, he understands that even if these creatures are not meaning to do damage, mm-hmm. they are. Yes. And that can be viewed as a threat. And they it can, can be viewed as something that needs to be dealt with. True. <laughs> right. So... He's, and his second self probably would have killed them all off. Right. In fact, I'm sure that happened in the original version of the story. <laughs> Giggled slightly. Yeah, exactly. Right. And does a little twirl and pull up the flute. Little and, yes. uh, here's my recorder. Oh, my giddy aunt. That was hotter than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would that's trauma for you. Yeah, you can already see, though, that this doctor has a very different approach to things. Mm-hmm. And to people. That bit where he's rude to Cornish without knowing who Cornish is is my favorite part of the story. <laughs> he just turns turns to the doctor and says, The man's a fool. How do I know who sent him without listening to it, without decoding it first? Now, let me explain this to you in very simple terms. Yes. Let me break this down for you <laughs> real quick. It's just lovely. But, uh, yeah. So it does have its moments, as Turn Stick said. Since we can't quite crack the plot, well, I wasn't. I didn't care to. I mean, okay. I could have gone back and reread, but I wasn't interested enough to do so. Well, it, it, it was fine. It wasn't yeah. completely incoherent. No. It was just. But it's confusing. We, this season, we've replaced endless corridor chases of the previous few seasons with car chases, which is still a nice changeup. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it was still a lot of run, 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 switch, double cross, but. It didn't have enough character moments for anyone other than Regan to make it especially engaging. Right. And none of our heroes were especially interesting or engaging. Yeah, so there's this one mustache twirling assassin who's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Or not even interesting, but kind of amusing. Um, and everyone else is fairly flat, including yeah. the aliens. There's nothing. So uh, usually the, the first 30 pages of these books build up some kind of interesting mystery. Right. And then. It usually doesn't take until after page 100, as it does here, to sort of reveal what's going on. By the time that happened, I wasn't really interested anymore. Yeah. I was wondering about that. It wasn't a terrible payoff. It was just too little too late. Right. Did you feel the same way, Dalton? Yeah. I was expecting something more to happen. The stakes to be a little higher than they were. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's just like, actually, we're just... We're just coming to say hi to y'all, and like, you kidnapped our people, and like force them to kill people. Now we have y'all's people. I'm like, what are we gonna do? It was just, yeah, it was just kind of underwhelming. Yeah, and I think it would the, be more interesting if they were folksy like that. Yeah, not even like the doc, the doctor's uh, interaction with them was mm-hmm. very much just like they're they're just like like. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't get what's going on. Like, yeah. can, can you talk some sense into him? Because like, <laughs> we are not having any luck. But no, that and you kidnapped our ambassadors. We're going to destroy your planet. It's like, oh, yeah. well, that doesn't happen on Earth very often. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. we'd never get anything done. Wow. But there is, yeah, it, it is kind of. 
odd, and I'm wondering, I was telling Dalton before we started recording that this is one of the stories that I will rewatch, mm-hmm. but I'll put it on in the background because it doesn't require a lot of attention. You don't need to pay attention to it. Yeah. yeah. There's oh. a lot of detail, but none of it is interesting detail. Yeah, yeah. Except I mean, for Regan bumping people off. Yeah, it's got an interesting soundtrack, and there are moments that are worthwhile. When Regan comes on screen, I mean, there you go. And that seems to happen on the page, too. You're immediately interested again, but then he's not on the page all the time. No. And, yeah, it's just a lot of killing. Which raises so many damn questions. It really does, because there are plot holes in this book that you could drive a desk through. By the way, have you heard about this new thing of people uh, uh, taking out a parking lot and just putting their desk there and using that as their office? (laughs) I just heard about this on NPR today. I was like, oh my god, really? And apparently there's no law against it. If you do, you know, rent a a space, that's your space. You don't have to put a car in it, necessarily. Probably not great for your respiratory health to just hang out in a parking lot for eight hours. Probably not. And I wouldn't suggest it alone Mm -hmm. in South... South on North Clark and um, Andersonville either. But if you could rent an office for $75 a month, (laughs) you could do worse. I wonder how that works for electricity. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, plot holes. What did you see? The fact that the Brigadier, like, the military within itself was not, like, communicating about what this was. Yeah. Like... Well, that happens a lot in these stories, mainly because UNIT is a United Nations task force. So it essentially works under the sufferance of the local military, even though the brigadier is ostensibly the head of it. Yeah. Um, he doesn't control it. The UNIT headquarters is actually in Geneva. So you'll hear a lot about the brigadier going off to Geneva to yeah. get, um, you know, the sort of clearance he needs. But as far as not always liaising with the British Army or even telling them what's going on, that happens a lot. Yeah. I thought that made sense. Yeah. Why didn't you involve this? Well, they're international and we don't want to tell them things. Exactly. I thought it actually worked. You know, the, the bureaucracy there, that makes sense. Yeah. In fact, you can, you can see Malcolm Hulk behind that one saying, look at how stupid our system is. That the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. The left hand is trying to kill us without our realizing it, and the right hand can't do anything. But also, when the whole planet is at danger by this intelligent alien life, Mm -hmm. isn't that an international issue? Well, the new series treats it that way. (laughs) So, and it should. I mean, they basically made the Doctor President of Earth. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to these things, so that's what that's that's where I was. I mean, yeah, they haven't gone that far yet. Yeah, so... Yeah, they haven't come to that consensus. Mainly because they haven't had to deal with anything quite so big yet. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I figure... <laughs> I figure what's happening in the fictional Doctor Who Earth of 1976 or 77 when this is happening is the U.S. is just looking and saying, okay, let's see what they're doing. And as soon as they fuck it up, we're going to move in and try to take care right. of it ourselves. But just probably nobody turn. else. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But we have seen in previous stories there is a level of cooperation in the Doctor Who universe that we don't get in ours. Yeah. I mean, uh, they could not have dispatched the uh, Ice Warriors. Uh, not the Ice Warriors, the Cybermen. 
an invasion if they didn't have the cooperation of the Russians at that point. Yeah. And we were not on good terms with the Russians at that point. So it's very, yeah, it, you're right. It's kind of a weird, it's one of those things that will come and go. Yeah, it's not consistent. It's very, very inconsistent. Okay. In fact, in the very next season, we will have a story in which there's literally the possibility of World War Three breaking out. And it's all an international thing. Mm. And UNIT actually has very little to do with it, and the Doctor has very little to do with it, but that's in the background of the whole story. And you're like, holy shit. And they're thinking about this in 1971? Good God. Yeah. So it's kind of awesome when they do use it properly. Yeah. Here, they haven't really used it all that properly. So looking at this cover, is this a wig, or is this his real hair? Or oh do my we know? God. Well, here's the thing. Um, Pertwee objected to the first version of this cover on the grounds that his hair was not as dark as the original artist had drawn it. In fact, the original artist had given him more salt and pepper hair. Um, but Pertwee pointed out, oh no, no, I was pretty gray by that point. Okay, so that is his hair? That is his hair. Okay. The difficulty there it's, it's is... It's kind of it, magnificent. It's more bouffantish. And I mean, it's, it's a bad cut, but the hair itself is kind yes. of... Amazing. I mean, this is very B. Arthur. Yes, it is, actually. I think oh, this oh, is yeah. how I'll look in 30 years. <laughs> the third doctor is very B. Arthur, if you think about oh. it. Yeah. And Worst people to be. Yeah, definitely. Well, they're both Leos. John Pertwee and B. Arthur, so it makes sense. I think they're both Leos. And then there's Doc. There's Doc. <laughs> <laughs> but you could totally incorporate the Doctor into oh, that yeah. song. Absolutely. <laughs> that, uh, that hair, though, is closer to his hair in later seasons because it's much more subdued in his first season. It's much more um, tighter to the head. Mm. It doesn't look like a bouffant. That's a, that's a defensive helmet is what that is. It really is. Lots of shock absorption. Oh my god, by the time you get to his last story, it's like out of control. It's like a white noise isolation <laughs> chamber. Literally. Yes, indeed. Oh god. Plot um, holes, though. Plot holes, though. <laughs> to bring us back. The ambassadors themselves, here's what I noticed. And this is something I didn't even notice while watching it, because these things... People will accuse us, our audience will accuse us sometimes of being too hard on these books, but when you put a plot down on a piece of paper, it somehow leads you to think more deeply into it than if you're watching it. Yeah. I mean, fridge logic will kick in if you're watching something later on, you're opening the fridge and you're like, wait a minute, he didn't have any pants on, what's going on there? Whereas here... You Why, is there, the start. Why is there a pantless man in my refrigerator? Why is there a immediately <laughs> in the, the shot? So the thing that came across to me is they're being forced to kill people. Yeah. And yet they have been manhandled multiple times mm-hmm. without the people manhandling them dying, even though we've been told direct contact with them will kill you. And they even, do die, but later, right? Well, well I assume so. Too. I assume they would, yeah. Um, they may have had protective clothing on, but that shouldn't have saved them from dying from that, you know, radioactive blast or whatever it is that the ambassadors have. It just seemed incredibly inefficient. I don't know if that's a plot hole so much as just a plot thing I think is stupid, but mm-hmm. it, it is the most complex way possible, inefficient way possible, just about to... Oh. Well, it doesn't make sense for framing up the aliens since they look like the astronauts, so I didn't understand yeah. how... 
it would create war with the alien uh, species if it's not obvious that mm. it's aliens and not astronauts. Well, what they were going to do, remember, is Carrington was going to have somebody pull the helmet off on screen mm. uh, yeah. on live television. And that's the other uh, thing. How yeah. would they have been able to get near enough to do so? How could they possibly... How did they tie the ambassador to that fucking chair in the first place? How are they going to wrestle the helmet off without getting killed? How does any of that work? Unless the ambassadors can control the effect of killing, perhaps? Yeah, or if that one specifically... Because they, since they had to keep radiating them... Maybe they were low power. Or maybe something. yeah, he was losing radiation, so he's weaker. But so he still, can't actually like, channel if, anything. Yeah, but if they're they they were what like two million rads was yeah. what they were reading. Well, that so was their that was their baseline. So yeah, exactly. That's um. And I can overlook a tremendous number of plot holes and weirdnesses like that if there's good. There are good atmospheric sense of menace and mystery, yes. but we did not have that. We no. didn't have kind of a fun ride. Don't look too closely at the mechanism. Exactly. It was just as you do on television. Not terribly engaging. Yeah. the The book, however, you get the sense that Dix is kind of done with this. Yes. And the reason why he doesn't want and and the reason why he's not putting more effort into it is because he probably feels oh that sadness. I know. He probably. This is <laughs> All of our alcohol is gone, if you're wondering at home what we're talking about. And you can understand this. Dix probably thought, I put enough work into the story in 1970, and I don't want to put any more into it. I'm just going to do it uh, strictly, you know, script a page. Yeah. And let the reader sort it out. It's not a fan favorite. In fact, it ranks very low. Um, But... Getting back to what Allison said, when you're watching it on television, it clicks along pretty well. Okay. For seven episodes, I, I wouldn't it feels have guessed like, that. Yeah, it feels like there's stuff going on, hmm. except there isn't. It's just very atmospheric. You've got very moody music. You've got the the astronauts themselves are very slow moving and very scary, hmm. and they're shot very well. And you've got good acting by the principles and by the guest cast i mean it really is a good story until you look at the plot and then you realize oh oops no. and here we're just looking at the plot we're not getting all exactly. of that that you saw on screen exactly and that would be my kitty um that's <laughs> not that's not allison having multiple ideas at once that is uh <laughs> hey. his his little uh collar which the we normally remove collar. before these podcasts but oh thank you for that dalton How does it come? yeah there you go <laughs> There you go. I'm sure he'll enjoy a now, little rest. Now Dalton is batting the bell around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where's my yeah. catnip? So, yeah, we're essentially looking just at the plot. We can't see some of the better stuff going on, such as Caroline John does a very good job as Liz, but I overheard the two of you saying Liz in the story is probably at her worst. They, were, they kept, I thought, setting up things that could be interesting that never quite materialized. Right, such as? Well, she's terrible at car chases and running away. And I expect her to do something more <laughs> clever yeah. or stupid in an interesting way. Or, oh, well, look at that. The scientist is very smart in some areas, but is very bad at running away from villains. But it was just, mm-hmm. no, run to get to a dead end and then try to cross a bridge on foot. It just, yes. There was no character development, positive or negative, it felt like. And for right. the Doctor, we have this idea that he remembers things... 
in isolation without the mm -hmm. context, but then that wasn't developed, and I didn't feel like we got really anything else. No, um, yeah. that developed. And whereas the doctor, you know, he tries to persuade them that you know I'm an asset. You don't want to kill me. I can actually help you. I can yeah. help whatever. Liz doesn't. Isn't there's not, not even any attempt to uh, to be like, hey, like I can help you do whatever you want. I'll be on your side. Well, except Regan does try to say, try to offer her a job. Well, that, but... Their only choice is that of being killed. Yeah. There's yeah. one kind of blunt force attempt at characterization really early on. Suddenly Cornish felt the full impact of the Doctor's personality, a blend of formidable intelligence and tremendous charm. He heard himself saying, well, I suppose we ought to try everything. But, <laughs> yes. But none of that intelligence and charm manifested yeah. on the page for us. I agree, and I actually... Wrote that in my notes, too. I said, this is the third Doctor all over. He can be insulting you to your face with heat and meaning, but as soon as he either knows you're in, he's in the wrong or that it would be in his best interest to have you on his side, you're his best friend. Mm. And that's true. That's absolutely true of this Doctor, but you cannot tell it from this book. You can tell it from Pertwee's performance. Yeah. And from later books, but not here. You know... And for that matter, you were saying about the fact that he remembers things but doesn't remember others. This is something that we actually just learned in this book because we're doing them in um, story order. Yeah, it had been mentioned on screen, but not hmm. before now, that he doesn't remember everything. Well, I had a friend who was in a terrible accident when he was 11. He was hit by a car on his bicycle, and this is what education was like for him is he would remember mm -hmm. some things and not remember how he knew them especially in math oh yeah that he would remember part of the multiplication tables and then not recall the mechanics of adding oh wow but seven times seven is 49 but i don't know why and I, mm -hmm. I actually thought that was going to be something interesting in the story about the frustration of that of right. you have to wait for the information to come up and be relevant to be able to yeah. recall it you can't sort of work your way there but yeah it wasn't developed at all here, no. but I thought it was a promising idea. Yeah, exactly. There's going to be something a little more like that in the next story too, where I'll say, "Yes, I've, I've heard, I've heard this sound before too." And it was at Krakatoa. Mm. That's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, Krakatoa, yeah. Which apparently he visits twice because the ninth Doctor has been there, according to the first episode of the new series. Uh, he enjoyed a tropical vacation. I guess so. I guess he would. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, let's see. What else? Um, transmigration of object. Mm -hmm. Yeah, special ability that's used once. Used once and would be really useful later to have, but he's never going to have it again. Ugh. God. I expected that to go somewhere more than it did also. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems like a skill that would come in super handy. Yeah. It, it does, doesn't it? And yet, no. And in fact, I think I mentioned Quatermass last time. Mm -hmm. The very first Quatermass serial is about a, a ship that goes up in the space and encounters a weird... It seems like a radioactive form, but actually it's a life form. And only one of the astronauts comes down and is still alive. Mm -hmm. And there's something wrong with him. This story borrows a lot of beats from that. Of course, there you have the payoff, because not only is the astronaut alive, 
but he's managed, uh, this creature has caused him to absorb his two fellow astronauts, and he starts absorbing everything he touches, including Mm. plants and other humans, to the point that he ends up being this creature at the very end. Yeah, and it's a terrifying uh, story. This, it's like, oh, we, we had first contact, but we blew it. I shouldn't have gotten so drunk on that first date. Yeah. And made her kill people. <laughs> Which brings me back to the whole thing. How do you force somebody to kill somebody if they could kill you with a touch? Yeah. What's keeping you what's keeping you in there? The promise of isotopes? So is this idea of I would say idea of Carrington being insane, this outright declaration that Carrington is insane, is that in the episode or is that Dix trying to justify why the plot is so low quality? Both. Because Cornish <laughs> says it directly, but then okay. the doctor thinking it is okay. not. Is, in the is that the writer papering over the fact that this plot doesn't make any sense? Like, oh, well, he's insane, you know? He's yeah. not very good at planning things. That's exactly what it is. The thing before last was insane is in the script, but also Dix is maybe using it to cover up the ludicrousness mm-hmm. of Carrington's plan. I said that it is... Yeah, stated both by... It is stated by Cornish, but the doctor never says it. But yeah, it kind of papers over the worst offenses of this. Which were in the original, so we can't really blame Dix for it. The only thing we can blame Dix for is doing what Dix does, which is transferring it directly from the script to the page. Which is exactly what they wrote him a check to do. Yeah, He's doing what he was paid to do no more. He Mm -hmm. clocks out at 5 p.m. Exactly. Now, the only thing that you may have noticed about late Dix here is that his description of the doctor gives, uh, he talks about him having a young old face. Mm -hmm. We're going to hear that one a lot. That's his formula. That's his formula for the uh, the doctor. Yeah, and and it does. And then, of course, um, his description of Liz, I think he says that she's good looking in a severe kind of way, which is what he used to say about Barbara. So I have a feeling he'll probably say that in Inferno, and then she'll be gone, so we'll never hear her described ever again. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's not true. I'll, we'll get there. How would you describe how Dix looks? No, no, no. No, I'm saying how would you just, I would just you know, turn it around. How would you describe his looks? Like, is he good-looking but severe? Or? Um, no. No. He's very grandfatherly and large. Oh, that's... That's a good backhanded description, kind uh, of like good-looking but severe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, trying to be kind of him, because I would still like to, you know, I would still like to at some point interview him for the show before he passes on, because I just found out the other day someone who wrote one of the script, scripts for the 80s and wrote the book for that script, he's gone. Mm. Just died the other day at the age of, I think, 52, and it's like, Damn! If they're going to pop their clogs that early, I'll never get around to interviewing them. Mm-hmm. Who cares about them dying? We need to interview them. Shit. Tony will conquer death for the purpose yeah. of preserving guests. I know. Podcast. It's like, God. It I did like his descriptions for Zoe and Jamie. Yeah. Remember those worked out. Yeah, those nice were good. Those were good. He didn't really write a lot of them. But there, there weren't a lot to write, really. Yeah. Anything else about this book that kind of stands out to you? Good or bad? But the best pair of lines in the book was 
One of the thugs went down beneath a pile of angry soldiers. The brigadier himself dealt with the other. After a short but satisfying fist fight, mm-hmm. the brigadier delivered an uppercut that sent the thug rolling unconscious. I like the <laughs> angry pile of soldiers and the short but satisfying fist fight. Yeah, I get that. But that was it. That was the biggest treat. I do find that there's uh, there's no way that Dix could have predicted, you know, the, the era in which we live, but... Um, in chapter 11, the line reads, the doctor shook his head, astonished at the way Carrington was fitting the facts to his theory. Yeah. And this was back in the day when people still could be shocked by someone bending the facts to fit their own narrative. And we're seeing yet another scenario by Hulk that differs from the two Earthbound story types. The idea of a fake invasion created by collaborators on Earth for different purpose. So he's still trying to push past that type yeah. of plot. It's just this one doesn't work nearly as well. Yeah, as I was I was I was thinking earlier like the the title's a little a little misleading. This should be called like the asshole earthling uh, <laughs> kidnaps uh, well, on monsters, first contact, you know. Key monsters is an ironic title as well. Well, yeah. Yeah, there's but, ambassadors and there's death. Yeah, there is that, but it's when they bring it I don't know. It, it's it's like it's like putting putting the. It's like pudding. It's like pudding. His hair. Well, you were pointing at his hair on the cover, so I thought. I'm just. Sorry. <laughs> trying, I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to say. It's already putting a bad taste in your mouth for these creatures that honestly have done. They didn't come here to do anything bad. True. True. You know. Yeah. Instead of being like this asshole uh, military gentleman. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but but you, you get know, that anyway, right? The kidnappers. Like, call it the kidnappers. Well, why? Because they kidnapped three fucking uh, well, aliens. Yeah, but then the reveal's gone, right? <laughs> the ambassadors of death. Yes. They the kill reveal, people. Well, the yes, thrill's gone, right? Yeah, but the reveal is that they weren't intending to do that to begin with. <laughs> but. Yeah. I I, yeah. I actually agree with you. Yeah, it's just, it's just yeah. I I'm trying to think of ways this story could have been improved. One of them is could Dix or any other writer, like Malcolm Hulk, have added enough to the story to have kept us interested. Mm. I think you could have had more of the Doctor's struggle to function in his new situation try to figure out what's going on without his usual mm. tools that he has. And okay. then the idea of trying to remember similar situations, not being able to recall them. Mm. I think that the rather benign plot could have been an adequate backdrop for more interesting sort of personal psychological drama hmm. okay. that we didn't really get here. Right. But obviously I'm really stuck on that memory thing. So. Yeah, yeah, understood. <laughs> Okay, Dalton? Uh, I don't think without changing a lot of what was going on here that it could have, you know, I don't feel like they could have improved a whole lot yeah. without without completely writing it for a third time. I, I would tend to agree because it, I think it, it had indeed gotten to the point where it was just kind of like really awful and there was just no doing anything about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's past the point of no return. It's a story that's kind of only kind of makes sense at this point because there was a plot there to begin with right. that probably made some sense. I, I guess my, my whole thing about like the title and talking about this alien species is like 
the the main chunk of what is going on in the book is not even about them. It's about this crazy fucking general yeah. who is like a maniac. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but and none was, especially engaging. No, but no. it's like it's more about him and what his motivation and action yeah. is doing. And they're just kind of second. They're just as secondary as Liz sitting in a in a cell. Yeah, like, it's kind of like those next gen episodes with the crazy admirals. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, like another one of those. It's like they, they have, have a lot of. Yeah. They have yeah. a lot of them. And Some so, of them are just evil. True. And true. so that's that's my thing. Is just like it's more about this this Earth character mm-hmm. than these these this alien I species. Agree. And if there had been more focus on Carrington and why yeah. he's like that and why he's doing this. Yeah, so I guess that would have been I what I'm missing. And I think Malcolm Hulk probably is the one responsible for that, so he probably would have expanded on it greatly. Yeah, would have got it right. Yeah. I mean, it's later authors that have expanded on other characters, like uh, Cornish will show up again mm. um, in an original, the first original Eighth Doctor book. And it'll be revealed that he's gay and has a, a boyfriend. And it's like, of course he does. Of course he does. Of course he does. <laughs> but it's a nice little bit. Yeah. Um, and a little bit of character development that, of course, you don't get in these books. Because you don't really get character development in these books unless someone's novelizing their own story. Or it's Malcolm Hulk. Yeah. Who will pay that much attention even to novels he writes of other people's stories. Yeah. And thank God we've got like five more of those to look forward to. And I guess that just makes me wonder if if focusing on this alien species is just a way to try to like make sure it's science fiction. Yeah. I would say that as opposed to just like uh, action or some kind of militaristic drama or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's a lot of it right there. And it's difficult to really pull that out when the plot itself and the televised version doesn't focus quite enough on it. Mm-hmm. That's the big problem. Yeah. But, oh well. Oh well. <laughs> well, as we always do, let's go on to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast, I don't want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or simply have a question about it. Write a review or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before reading it out, uh, discussing the book ourselves, and you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.35. Hmm. Which is a bit higher than I would have expected. It's like a decent score. But it's definitely lower than the last two books we covered because those were primo, whereas Mm -hmm. this one, yeah, not so much. Our old friend, Daniel Kukwa, gave it the highest rating at four stars, saying, I've never been a big fan of the TV version of Ambassadors of Death, too long, too drawn out, and too concerned with tiny details at the expense of a brisk pace. But in the hands of former script editor Terrence Dix, the prose version of this tale is stripped down and streamlined into a much more manageable and much more enjoyable adventure. The last of the John Pertwee third Doctor of novelizations makes for surprisingly crisp and concise reading. Well, it's definitely concise. Mm-hmm. I mean, the seven episodes mm. boil down to 144 pages. Yeah, it seemed to go on forever. It really did. Jonathan Dabell, or Dabble? 
<laughs> I don't know how he pronounces it. Jonathan Debell's rating of two stars is closer to the norm, and he writes, I read this as a br- I read this as a brief time filler, having got back into the old Doctor Who stories and programs due to my daughter's interest in them. The book is very straightforward and simplistic and bears all the hallmarks of a hastily novelized spin-off, which of course is precisely what it is. Very fast and easy to read, but lacking true verve. Some of the plotting was interesting-ish, such as the various double crosses that take place throughout the story and the fact that the perceived baddies turn out to be less evil and mean-spirited than we are led to believe expect early in the story. The dialogue is exceptionally clunky and unbelievable, though, and the book is somewhat lacking in real depth and soul. He puts that in air quotes. David E. did essentially what we did and focused on the TV story, saying... Having only just bought the DVD of this after a gap of possibly 15 years of seeing the TV story, I have to say this remains one of the worst Kurtwee stories for me. Slow, plodding, and uninteresting in all of its seven interminable episodes. Some people rate this story quite highly. I have no idea why. And why am I focusing on the TV story so much? Well, that might be because the novelization is just a script embellishment job by Dix. Such a contrast to the rich storytelling evident in the Auton Invasion. He manages to give the Regan character a bit of backstory along with Lennox, but these are brief flashes of something interesting. The biggest disappointment for me is that Dix had the opportunity to write, rewrite the ending, <clears throat> which is so short and unsatisfying in the TV story, it's no different here. The Doctor just turns up to space control with the Brigadier, stops Carrington, and then just tells everyone to sort the rest of it out and sods off. Poor show all around. I wonder what Hulk would have done. And finally, Sarah's one-star review is short but not sweet. <laughs> Couldn't even finish. Slow moving and didn't feel like Doctor Who. Hmm. And well, she's right there. It's more yeah. like Avengers or uh, the you know Persuaders or what have you. I don't know that it's slow. Yeah. It's a lot of back and forth. Yeah, it's weird because some will say that the pacing is good and the others will say the pacing is slow and that means if we can't agree on the pacing then there's something wrong with the pacing. Mm. Yeah. I guess it, like there's a lot going on but the final payoff just doesn't happen. Exactly. There's In a lot a, of frantic rushing around yeah. but not much advancement of the overall plot for about a 60 or 70 page stretch there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Allison, what would you give this out of five stars? I'd probably go with a 1.5. Mm-hmm. I don't hate it. It's just, it's a skeleton that doesn't have any sort of the, the fun, juicy bits. Okay. Or very little of the fun, juicy bits that mm-hmm. tend to come up in even the, the more rote stories. Okay. I would, I would agree. I, I felt that it, it lacked the sort of humor and character moments mm-hmm. and sort of more interesting sci-fi interesting inventive adventure moments that we've come to expect okay which actually speaking well of the other books more than bashing this one oh, yeah. this isn't terrible it no. just it felt like homework yeah and i'm sorry for that <laughs> well you are an english professor yeah so. i do put you all through it i understand <laughs> our reports were due today yes well, you d- well, it's our presentation. I thought it interesting that you both had it finished by the time we recorded. I mean, we had the extra time, but also that showed me that you just wanted to get it done. Yeah. Yeah, because 
I've, I've, I've looked at it this way. The books that you've taken the longest to finish are the, the ones that are actually good. Do you kind of yeah, want to say Yeah, we're enjoying, those? yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dalton, what would you give this out of five? Uh, out of five, I'm just going to go right down the middle and say 2.5. Yeah, the writing itself isn't anything spectacular, but it's not the worst thing I've ever read, even by Terrence Six standards. Um, yeah, just it just feels kind of like a shrug. Okay. <laughs> like, meh. Don't really care. There's not a whole lot of character development. There's oh, really wow. not of Yeah. Dalton's given the book a low score. Even nature was revolting. The cat just went all crazy there <laughs> for a moment. Um but I guess it's just like it's just underwhelming. You know. Like I want it to be more. I want there to I wanted it to go somewhere more to have be more of a payoff or there to be something else to it. Right. But it's just kind of underwhelming and flat but like mm-hmm. the little bits that are there are interesting enough but mm-hmm. yeah overall I'm just kind of underseasoned might be the one word underseasoned yeah. it's sort of bland chicken breast of a book it's yeah. not spoiled right it's just it's not as well developed as Pertley's hair completely underseasoned yeah yeah and as for me um I was actually looking to see what I gave Space Pirates because I'm almost certain I gave Space Pirates a 1. And I think Kitty's trying to agree with me Kitty there. Kitty gave Space Pirates a 0.75. Yeah, probably. This one, whatever score I gave Space Pirates, this is right there with it. It's definitely... I think it's a 1. Because, mm. it's again, it's not that I hate it. But I really did not enjoy reading it. Mm. Not in the same way that I enjoy watching the TV version. And if I'd had this... As my only only version of the story, I'd be really disappointed. But I know what the televised version is like. You can watch it any time on BritBox. And it's worth watching. Mm-hmm. This book gives you a bad impression of what that story is. Now granted, all the plot holes are still there. All the silliness is still there. And there are even some things that may look even sillier on screen because of, you know, blue screen and CSO and mm-hmm. all that. That being said, yeah, this is one of those instances where the book is far, far less good mm. than the uh, the movie is. Yeah. Well, thank you guys, thank you. especially thank you. for suffering through that one. <laughs> and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we'll read yet another 80s novelization of a pearly story. Another. And it's by Dix as well. Uh, the, but it's slightly better. It's earlier in the 80s, for one thing. It's Tony gets next, a break, but there's no break for us. There's no break for you. <laughs> the next televised story, Inferno. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Your Target Book Club Podcast, all in order to go spaces like a crazy person. You can also visit our pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dbtargetbc. Feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes and give a thumbs up or comment. We're at YouTube. Uh, forward slash user, forward slash Emperor forward slash videos. Emperor commutes is going to be coming to an end very soon. So you can catch the last two episodes of that coming up in the next couple weeks. Did the Emperor lose his license? No, the Emperor did not lose his license, but the Emperor may be giving up his car. Uh. So there's no point in actually doing that those videos anymore. But I will continue with, with, with vlogs, probably more weekly vlogs. Follow us on Twitter, we're DWTargetBC. Subscribe to us via the podcaster of your choice, including Spotify. Woohoo! If all else fails you, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. 
Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. near the end, so okay. there wasn't much to discuss this time. Alright. Alright. We'll be, uh, and food, of, of course, is back there. So eat it. Eat yeah. it. If it's getting cold, <laughs> we eat it. Oh, that was harsh. <laughs> no, 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 I was trying to leave <laughs> <Yes>. the food. <laughs> I said, if it's getting cold, we eat it, but she stepped on my, as always, she stepped on my uh, punchline. Alright, fine.